If you have a copy of the Bible, you can open it up. Uh, we're going to be in the start of Genesis chapter 2 this morning. So we've made it to the second chapter of the Bible after numerous weeks uh, in the book of Genesis. So we'll start there here in just a bit. Uh, but I wanted to share a couple of things uh, before we do. One well, is just, as always, a special welcome to you if you're a guest with us this morning. Uh, if you're from out of town, welcome. We're glad that you're here with us and hope that the Lord ministers to you or maybe that he already has. But if you live here locally and you don't yet either know the Lord at all or you don't have a church family, uh, we'd love to potentially be that for you, uh, be a place where you can learn of the Lord and, and fellowship. If you would like to know some more about our church and let us know a little bit of who you are, you can fill out a connection card. It's real simple to do. Uh, you can fill it out digitally, follow that QR code, or fill out the paper one that's on the back of your program. Uh, take it out with you into the lobby and take a left at the end of the morning, and there'll be some folks there who'd like to receive that, and, and we'll follow up with you. Uh, all, also, a weekly uh, thank you to all of you individuals individuals, couples, families, and your generosity to our church and the, the common fund, the general fund that we have a church that goes to, to fund our mission here and around the world. Uh, thank you. I want to encourage you to keep being faithful uh, with what the Lord has given to you. And then uh, one other just announcement before we turn here. Uh, we're uh, doing something this upcoming Saturday called a singles breakfast. It's just like what it sounds. It's a breakfast for single adults. Don't just think of young single people. If you're an adult and you're single, uh, this would be something that you are invited to. And our heart behind this, we haven't done something like this in quite a while, uh, but our heart behind it is to encourage those who are single in our church to, whether it's a season of your life, uh, we all start life single, right? Some of us remain single the entirety of life. So whether it's a season or it's the entirety of your life, we want to be an encouragement to you and to encourage you to think how you can use that singleness, whether it's a stage, a season, or whether it's the scope of your life for the glory of God in unique ways and be an encouragement to you, give you some good food, uh, to boot, help you meet some other single folks in the church that, that you can be a blessing to and, and receive blessing from. If you would like to come to that, it's at uh, 10 o'clock this upcoming Saturday. If you could sign up for it, there's a real simple little RSVP form on our website. It takes like 15 seconds to fill out. Uh, submit that. That way we know how much food to get ready. If you have food allergies, stuff like that, you can let us know. But I hope that many of you, uh, men and women, can uh, come to that this Saturday morning. All right. Hope that you have found Genesis 2. In a few minutes, I'm going to read these first three verses of Genesis 2 as we get uh, further into this book. Um, but I've been thinking a lot in light of this text about the rhythms of our life as individuals or even as a society. Uh, what are some of the ways that we frame our life, the ways that we kind of think in schedules and sequences, things like that? And I think most of you would probably agree with this if you, if you would give time to think about it. Uh, that the rhythm of our lives, typically, in our day, in our age, uh, in our, our place on this planet, the rhythms of our life are more driven by our employers and by our schools than by the scriptures. And I don't mean that as a slam to employers <laughs> or schools, uh, but we typically frame our lives around categories of a work week or maybe a school week and then a weekend, Right? That's kind of the ideal or the, the natural order that we think of. Work week slash school week, weekend. And what we've ended up doing uh, is that we think in a rhythm of five and two. Five and two. Five and two. And there may be variations on that, but we tend to think in terms of five and two. Week and weekend. Uh, of course, there are some people, I would acknowledge, who in different stages of life kind of don't think in categories of any numbers. It's just every day is interchangeable. They wake up and they don't know if it's Tuesday or Saturday or whatever. Uh, they just kind of live life uh, either as a workaholic or maybe as a sluggard. I don't know. But they just lose any classification of days at all. There are some people like that. But no matter where we are, we typically do not think in terms naturally of six and one. Of six and one of six and one. But I, I think that's what, if we come to the scriptures, that's how God would want us to think of our lives. That's how he would want us to frame our time and think of a rhythm of life is not to just see every day the same and it's not to see a, a sequence of five and two, five and two, five and two, but to see a sequence of six and one. A pattern of six days of work and labor and one day of rest. And this is not what we're gonna read about today. It's not just some outdated way of life. Five and two is not better and more noble and a sign of human advancement than six and one, right? It's not that we should progress to now, oh, let's push for four and three. 
right? Like, it's not a sign of progress. This is not, this six and one is not just an outdated way of life that we want to move beyond, but it's a creation pattern of God from the very beginning that we would be wise to retain, that we would be wise to try to hold on to or push back toward. And we would be well served, I would say, and I think we'll see from this text and from others, we would actually be well served to return to that mentality. Uh, that whether it's physically, mentally, spiritually, uh, we would be well served to return back to this pattern and thinking of our life of six and one, six and one, six and one. And so this morning we're going to see how God concluded his week of creation. Uh, we've been looking for weeks now at Genesis chapter one, where we saw the, the six days of creation, how uh, God uh, created, we saw kind of this sequence, right, where he would create spaces, whether it was the heavens or the skies or the seas or the land. He'd create these spaces and then he'd fill them with creatures or maybe even with the sun and the moon and the stars. And we saw uh, the last few weeks, we saw, uh, uh, we took some more time to talk about day number six, where God created the land animals, but then most especially he created human beings, uh, how he created us in his image and how he created us. We saw last Sunday to, we said, to reproduce and to represent Uh, to see more image bearers and to spread out his rule over the world. Uh, But what we're going to read today is three short verses, but they're packed with significance. Moses, the author of this, we believe, is going to record a day seven. Uh, Not where God creates more things, but where God actually rests from his work of creation And this is a text, it's short, but as the Bible unfolds, as time unfolds from this moment onward, I would say it kind of, it flowers with significance. It starts very small and modest here, but it gets referenced a ton. It grows as time goes on to teach us more and more. And we'll get to look at some of those things, but I want to go back to the start of it and what Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, actually records for us about this day number seven. So I'm going to read this, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 would encourage you to follow along in your copy of the Bible. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of it. I want to summarize uh, this message with just this short sentence uh, flowing out of this text and I think represented in the rest of the scriptures that Sabbath rest is a gift to receive, not a burden to bear. Uh, There's other things that we could say about it, but at, at minimum, Sabbath rest is a gift to receive, not a burden to bear. And we're going to walk through this text and some others that that we'll see in the scriptures, but I'm going to use three headings to keep us uh, tracking along. Um, They all have to do with this rest. The the first one's going to be the nature of God's rest. The second one's going to be the pattern of God's rest. And then the last one's going to be entrance into God's rest. And so we're going to start with this text itself and talking about the nature of God's rest. What does that mean? Uh, That on day seven, God rested uh, from his work. Uh, This text, Genesis 2, 1 through 3, it is a text about God right? There's, there's not commands given in it. it. It's just a, it's a descriptive text, right? It's saying what he did or what he did not do on this day seven. Um, but it's important then for us to, to start here, to understand the way God rested. What does that mean that he rested? If we're going to understand its implications for us, right? We need to see what was he doing or not doing on that day seven. I, I want to clarify one thing before we get too much into this. When I was reading this text initially this week, I was a little bit confused reading verse 2. It, parts of it can make it sound like there was still a little bit of work left to do on day 7, that on day 7 God finished, right? That, it could feel like, ooh, did he have like a little bit of leftover like I do sometimes at the end of my work week and he had to jam it into that seventh day. I don't think that's what Moses was communicating, especially based on how the rest of the Bible talks about this text. But even in these verses themselves, it makes it clear that his work of creation was actually 
finished by day seven, not on day seven. Uh, like if you look at verse number one here in the text, it, for example, makes it clear, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, right? Before it even mentions day seven, uh, that all of the work of creation was finished. And even verse two, the one that had confused me, it talks about how God had finished the work he had done, right? So that by the time day seven begins, God has completed his work of creating. Uh, this glorious, mind-boggling work of creation had been done on day six. But I, I want to point out a couple of things about what this rest was. What, what was God doing? What was he not doing? Because I think sometimes we misunderstand. The first thing I would point out from this text is that God's rest was a rest of completion, not of depletion. Uh, like God does not get tired like we do, right? Uh, Aaron read a great text from Isaiah 40 that, that we are different from God. Like we tire, even the youngest, strongest among us get tired. God does not. It's not as if by the end of creating Adam and Eve, he's like, whew, I need a break. Like I need to go lay down for a bit. Uh, God is not doing that. He's not depleted. He's not lacking energy. He's not lack, lacking power. If he wanted to keep creating, he could have kept creating, right? But it's a, a rest of completion there's this language again and again of his work being finished right that that he is done with the creative work that he was doing and so his rest unlike ours was purely a matter of choice right it wasn't a matter of him collapsing or just I, I'm falling over tired it was a choice that he made to restrain himself to stop to put an end to the work that he had been doing the work that he had completed and it's as if here and there will be echoes of this that come later at the cross it's as if God the Father here on day seven is saying it is finished right like I, I'm done making this like what I'm going to make in all its glory this universe uh, these things that humans will keep discovering for millennia uh, I'm finished creating I'm going to do other things but I, I'm done with my work of creation and so it's a rest of completion not of depletion let's not confuse that right we rest because we are tired God does not ne he never tires but I'd also say this that his rest God's rest that we get a, a glimpse of here uh, which is hard to wrap our minds around but his rest is a rest of enjoyment not of avoidance uh, and what I mean by that, if you read other creation stories from the ancient times and that part of the globe, often when they would talk about their gods and the creation of human beings, it would be in some ways like their gods were making these humans to do the work for them so they didn't have to. Right? Kind of like some of us when we have kids, we're glad to give them tasks. Like, hey, go mow the lawn so I don't have to mow the lawn. Uh, go make dinner so I don't have to make dinner. That's how some ancient Near East cultures would think of the gods making humans was so their gods could get out of work. So they could avoid it and kind of pawn it off on somebody else. That is not at all the, the tone or the feel of this text at all. God is not trying to get out of anything or pawn work off onto human beings. He's not trying to get out of anything he's enjoying what he made right there's a, a quote from a commentator named Kenneth Matthews where comparing this narrative and some of the other ancient stories of creation he said God's Sabbath however is not aversion to labor but the celebrative cessation of a completed work whereby he expresses his mastery of time by sanctifying it I thought that was very well said that God is not trying to get out of work he's enjoying the work he's already done and yes, he entrusts work to do to human beings, but not in such a way where he is trying to get out of it. He's going to work through people. He's going to work alongside the creatures that he made. And so it's a rest of enjoyment, not of avoidance. And the last thing I would note about the nature of God's rest here, and this is an important thing, is that I think Moses is trying to hint at something, that this is a perpetual rest. It's not just a rest of one day. And then God, like day eight comes around, like Monday comes around like it does for us. Or that first day of the week comes around like it does for us. And the reason I would argue that, and if you've been with us the last several weeks, you may have felt this by what wasn't said about day seven. Do you remember as we've read through days one through six, they would end, every single one of them, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day, and it's so on and so forth through days one through six. When you hit day seven, and it says that God rests from his work, it's like you're waiting for that to be said. Like there was evening and there was morning the seventh day, but did you hear me read that? Did you see it in your Bible? 
It's not there. It's, by, it's interesting. Like the, 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 the flow of this text, the pattern of it is broken here. There's not a mention of day seven like being a day like the other days, but there's something different about it. There's not an end to it. It's not as if God picks back up his work on day eight. And so our work weeks, our school weeks, even when we think of them six and one, six and one, they wrap up and then restart, right? They wrap up and then restart. They wrap up and restart. God does not. Like, he doesn't start some new creative work on day eight. And I, I, I would just point that out because I think this is on purpose by the Spirit of God and maybe by Moses himself that there's a note here right at the very beginning of eternality. Like, uh, that, that we're not just these creatures who operate in days and, and weeks and months and years, but there's this eternal rest of God there's a, that begins right here at day seven. There's this eternal nature to God, and there's an eternal rest even that will be opened up to human beings to enter into as well. Uh, that, that it's not just a, every seventh day I rest, but there's an eternal rest that I think God has made us with a longing for, that he's already enjoying and living in right now and has been since this day, uh, but that he invites us to join into. And so it's a perpetual rest. But like I said, though, the, there are no commands given in this passage, right? It's just a descriptive passage. It's not like later there will come commands, and we'll look at these, about the Sabbath day. But here in this text, there are no commands. It's just a description of day seven and God's rest on it. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. But this text, these three short verses have huge implications as you keep reading the rest of the Bible. Uh, they become very significant, very influential, very important, uh, very important verses in the rest of Scripture. Uh, and I want to point to a few of these uh, and under the heading of the pattern of God's rest. So we had first the nature of God's rest. What was he doing? What was he not doing? He was enjoying his creation. Uh, he was uh, enjoying the completion of it. Um, but how and in what ways did it become a pattern for human beings to follow? Because we're not God, but we are called to be his image bearers, right? Uh, we're called to represent him, to show things about him. So if God rests on the seventh day, if he does work and then rests, it follows that we'll see in the Bible that he made us to do the same, uh, that we're to show something about him and our working, but then our stopping from work in order to rest, that we show something about God as human beings. No animals are just saying, oh, it's the seventh day. I should probably stop and, and take a rest, right? But there's something unique about human beings where we can clock time, where we can mark it, where we can make choices about it. And so it's no surprise as you keep going through the scriptures and if God had this uh, act on the seventh day of resting uh, that it becomes a pattern for his people to follow. And the primary place that we see this and you're probably familiar with this is in the giving of the Ten Commandments. Right? Uh, the same Moses who's recording this Genesis 2 uh, was the same man who met God at Mount Sinai. Right, And we have recorded for us in Exodus 20 these Ten Commandments that God gave to his people through Moses and one of those core ten commandments is about Sabbath rest right so if you look at Exodus chapter 20 verses 8 through 11 this is what God said to his people through Moses uh, it's embedded as one of those ten core commandments for his people he said this remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who's within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That last verse is like a direct quote, right, of what we just read from Genesis chapter 2, how God blessed that day, made it holy. But the, the logic God's using that Moses then, on his behalf, uses with the people of Israel is God did this. He worked, then he rested. So you do the same. Like you're supposed to represent him, you do the same. You work six days, the seventh day you set apart as a day to not work, a day to keep holy and it's like this idea that should have been embedded in human beings from the very beginning that if God can rest from his labors you can rest from yours right 
or because God has rested from his labors, you can rest from yours. And there are countless texts then that from Exodus 20 onward, from Sinai onward, that reference that command to, to honor the Sabbath, to keep it holy. Time would not allow us to go through all of them, but there are tons of them. Uh, they, these commands that are given of what Sabbaths should look like, and they're not even just once a week. Sometimes they're every so many years. Or there, there's different Sabbaths, um, but there's these texts that build upon each other to establish these boundaries, practices, expectations. But eventually what you see is God's people even went beyond what God had said. They had started to just heap on these expectations and rules about what you could or couldn't do on the Sabbath, right? That's why when Jesus finally comes, this is a constant subject of discussion with his people. Is what am I allowed to do on the Sabbath and what am I not? And it's a, a touch point, it's a conflict point of Jesus and his people and Jesus, when he finally arrives, has to remind his people again and again and again that the Sabbath is a gift of God to his people, right? That, that it's not a burden to be placed upon them, but it's a gift of God to them. To be honored, to be practiced, but it's not to be a burden for them. And I, I just want to point out one thing that was kind of a, a light bulb, uh, simple thing, but something I feel like I never have really grasped adequately until this week, and it's very simple. I'm almost embarrassed to admit this. But th it was fascinating for me to remember uh, and to take note of this week that before the Sabbath was a part of the law, it was a pattern of creation right? Like often when I think of Sabbath, I just think, oh, it's a law of God that came at Sinai, uh, and from then on, God's people were supposed to honor it in some way, shape, or form, uh, and I just think of it as law to keep. But what Genesis 2 tells us is that long before Sabbath law came, Sabbath pattern was established, that, that God created and then rested, and that his image bears, it seems like we're supposed to be aware of that even before a specific law ever came. They were supposed to be aware God worked and rested. So we're to work and then rest. And so law came, the law came later, but there's this creation pattern first. And so I, I want to point out a couple things from back in Genesis 2. A couple things that God did uh, on that day or even to that day, you might say, that we could easily miss. I almost missed them in previous times I've read this text. The two things that it says that God does apart from resting from his work, the things he does to this day, it says that he blesses the Sabbath, right? And then I would say that he consecrated it or that he made it holy. That's what the text says, right, uh, on, in verse 3, that God blessed the seventh day and he made it holy. What's that mean? What, that he blessed it and then that he made it holy. For it to say that God blessed the Sabbath day, I think significant for us. If you've been with us, you saw back in chapter 1, a couple times already God has blessed something right? Like he did it with animals, uh, and then he did it with human beings. And it was, always, it was tied in both of those instances. It says he blessed them, then he says be fruitful and multiply, right? Like, so there's this idea of blessing of God. It enables the thing, whether it's a being or here like a, a block of time, it enables it to actually help flourishing, help give life, help develop these people. And so when he says that he blessed the seventh day, it's like he's infusing it in some way. He's giving this seventh day this ability within even that space of time, if it's lived in rightly, to help human beings flourish, to help them grow, to help them live up to who he called them to be. The seventh day is a blessing to them to help us multiply, help us flourish in the ways that God has called us to live. It's supposed to be life-giving, right? Empowering, not a drag to weigh us down, but it's supposed to be something that gives us life. And I think we all know this in our human experience that we need rest, right? Like we need it. That's part of how God made us as his creatures, that we need a rest. We might not think of it as a Sabbath rest initially until we're given that category, but we know that we need a rest. We know that we need these moments, these times to cease from our typical labors. And God in his kindness has given us a daily rhythm, right, of sleep. 
that we need to, at the end of every day, we need physically, almost as a necessity. I know it can be a struggle at times for people, but it's like a necessity for us to physically rest our body. But we know in our human experience that even beyond just that physical rest, we need emotional, mental, psychological, spiritual rest, don't we? But those have to be a choice. Right? Like those have to be, for us to try to find that type of rest is a matter of choice, not just of necessity. Right? It's not just thrust upon us, it's something that we have to choose. And there are blessings and gains for us as human beings in having this recurring pause, this recurring stopping of our work, this ceasing from our typical labors. And if you've done that before, you've probably felt that, that there's a gain that can come of physical uh, re-strengthening, of emotional strengthening, of psychological regrouping, right? A weekly rest, if we practice this six and one, six and one, six and one, that weekly rest can recharge us, to use a modern analogy. It can, it can uh, rejuvenate us. It can give us life back, Right? In a weekly rest, a few other things it can do. It can remind us to not just let time pass by us. I talk that way sometimes. I think we often talk this way as if I'm just in some stream of time that I have no control over. It's just time's just passing me by. Look how time's passed. I can't believe it's October already. I can't believe we're in the last quarter of the year. And we just act like we're passive in relation to time. But if we make a choice to view our life as six and one, six and one, six and one, it's like we're regaining the reality. Yes, I don't control time, but I can choose how I spend it. That I I can be dedicated to certain things now and not on these other days, right? Time does not just pass us by. It's something God gives us that he entrusts to us to use. And a Sabbath rest can help us remember that. And the other benefit I would say is that this weekly rest, this weekly stopping can be a good reminder for ourselves that we are weak and God is not, right? That we are limited, but God is not. That we sleep, but God never sleeps. Like we can stop and God keeps on going, right? Like, and it is good for us because we can live under the illusion that I've got to keep spinning my wheels. I can do this. I've got to keep spinning and spinning and spinning and spinning because if I don't, or if I stop, everything's going to fall apart. But that is not true. It has never been true. Even before sin entered the world, it was not true. There, there was supposed to be this rest amongst people of God to remember that he is God, I'm not. I represent him, but I don't replace him, right? And this weekly rest can remind us of that. So God, he uh, blesses that seventh day. It's for our good, this pattern of six and one. But it also says that he made it holy, right? I, I would say that he consecrated this day. It's not just that he wanted the day to be different, Right? or to be unique, but that he wanted it to be a holy day. He wanted it to be a sanctified day, Right, that he made it not just different, he made it holy. And I would suggest to you that's why as Sabbath laws started to come and Sabbath practice started to come, is that that day was typically used for worship. It was used to engage with God, to not just stop doing whatever labors had taken up their week, but to do something in its place. Right, to actually engage with the Lord, to read from his word, to sing to him, to gather with his people, to, to pray uh, to him, to hear from him. This day was set apart to be holy. Right? And they were not just to avoid labors, but to engage in more uh, God-direct labors. Right? To, to, to talk to him, to speak with him, hear from him. I love the, the term that Puritans developed. They called uh, the Lord's Day, which we'll talk about in a minute, they called it a market day of the soul. Uh, like there's six days where you do marketplace work of some sort, whether it's within your household or actually out at the market. But the seventh day, that six and one, was to be a day that's a marketplace day, a market day for your soul. Not just that you take a nap, although that can be wonderful, but that you actually try to be filled. You try to, to grow in your knowledge of God, your enjoyment of God on that six on that one. Uh, You set it aside to be holy. And that's what I think God is saying when he says that he blessed it and he made it holy. Okay? So there's this pattern that's set of God, uh, his nature of his work, of a completedness, a rest, and then there's a, uh, that we are to mimic it. We're to follow it. Our lives are to be marked by this rhythm of six and one, six and one, six and one, and that's for our good. 
right? And that day was set aside for divine purposes, for holy purposes. But we are not, I would suggest to you, we are not merely meant to mimic God's rest, but we're to join it. Like we're to enter into it. And that's a much grander, deeper thing. We're not just to copy it and how we live this life, but in that eternal sense, that ultimate sense, we're to enter into that rest of God. We're to join him in it. And so the, the last bit this morning, I want to talk about this important subject of entrance into God's rest. Like what does that mean? How does it happen? Entrance into God's rest. As human beings, we long, I think you would say this, uh, then you would resonate with me, we long for permanent rest, right? There's something, you don't have to teach a little kid to have that, we just have it as human beings. We have this longing we can't even always put our finger on, but we want permanent rest. That's what we were made for, I think, was to have this permanent rest in our soul, but at the same time we have a longing for that, we have a restlessness about us, don't we? Because we can't find it. Like we can't experience, we can't grab it. Like we want, in our human hearts, in our souls, we want more, and I think this is good, we want more than just temporary tastes of rest, right? We get those. Right, uh, uh, different parts of our year, parts of our life, we get these little tastes of rest that are sweet, that are, are joyful. We get tastes of them. But even in the experience of those things, we know they're not ultimate, don't we? We know something could go wrong. We know this thing's going to end. All good things must come to an end, we say in this life, right? Uh, we, we want more than this temporary taste, but even when we get these tastes of it, we know they're not ultimate. We know they're not permanent, right? And so we keep trying to find it. Like we know it's not coming from this, so I'm going to try to find it somewhere else. And some of those pursuits are more noble than others. Some of them, I was trying to think of ways we search out, that we try to find rest, this, this permanent rest, even though I think we know it's futile, uh, ways we try to find it. We try to find it in things like recreation, I think. Like just, we love recreation, just getting out and kind of uh, enjoying nature or going out and doing things just for fun. There's something enjoyable or enjoyable about that, life-giving about that. Uh, so we try to find it there. We try to find it in our day and age, this rest. We try to get taste of it in vacations sometimes. Because that's a resting from our typical work, right? So we go somewhere. Or we try to plan some really fun thing that at most is going to last like two weeks, right? And it might be sweet as sweet can be. But we know we're coming home, right? We know there's a flight back. Or we know I got to get back to my job. Uh, we know vacation's not going to get it. Or in our day and age too, I think we try to find it in retirement. Like we make that this end of my life type of thing that I'm going to work as much as I can right now till I get to that stage of life where I can just rest. Like where I can have a calmness of schedule and I hear some folks kind of chuckling because I think the retired folks among us would say, you're not really not working. You might not be getting a paycheck, but you're working, right? Like, and you know when you get there, it's elusive. Like wait, you've tried, you waited your whole life for that thing, thing, and that's where I'm going to find this rest in my life. So then, sometimes we even go a step beyond that, and we think about death as this, right, as this ultimate rest for us. If I can't find it in this life, maybe I'll find it in death. Maybe, maybe on the other side of the grave, I will find rest. And I don't think it's coincidence we talk about death, in our culture at least, often as rest. Have you ever noticed this? Like we'll say when somebody uh, passes away, we'll say may they rest in peace. Right? Or they, we say that they are laid to rest. Or that where they're buried is their final resting place. Right? Or we'll say things like, oh, God rest his soul, or God rest her soul. Uh, we think that in death there's this final rest, that there's a, this ceasing from striving, right? We'll talk about how that is an illusion even though as well, if we're outside of Christ. So no matter where we try to find this rest, it is always elusive. 
Like we can never wrap our hands around it. We can never get a hold of it. And even when we think that we have, it flies away. But that longing remains, right? We can't find that rest in life. And left to ourselves, we won't find it in death either. This, this rest that we know we want, that we crave so bad, we won't find it in life. You, you can hunt for it. You can try to buy it. You can try to manufacture it. You can try to engineer it somehow. Maybe think, I'm going to figure out a way to have true rest. You will not. Like, you will not find true rest in a new job, in a new house, in a new spouse, in a new exercise routine, a new whatever. Like, you will not find it in anything in this life. You won't even find it in observing a Sabbath, right? You can make that the pattern of your life. And just that act itself is not going to give you true eternal rest. They give you a little taste of it. It's not going to give you eternal rest. But I would suggest to you we can't even find that ultimate eternal rest even in death on our own. It is a lie of the enemy for us to think apart from Christ when I die that I am going to eternal rest. That is a lie of the enemy. And he would like many people to go to the grave thinking there's rest for my soul on the other side. When God has told us, like as those who've rejected him, those who've rebelled against him, that on the other side of death, for those who are, are not repentant, who are not trusting in Christ, is not rest, but is judgment. And I tremble at how many people have thought they're going into the grave awaiting what they think is rest on the other side, and that is not what they receive. And if that's what you think, is just death is the pathway to rest for me. Like you need something other than just death itself, right? Death itself doesn't deliver you rest. God gives you rest. Like he gives you the rest that he made you to enjoy. He is the only place, the only person that you can find it from. So we, we are all on this futile quest for rest, like this eternal rest. It's this futile quest we all have as human beings, I think, in every culture and every time. But God has, in his grace and kindness, actually provided a way that we can experience that rest, where we can actually enter into his rest. He's been enjoying it since day seven. He, he's been enjoying it for a very long time, and he, in his kindness and mercy, has made a way that you can enter into that rest with him. That all of us, if we come to him on his terms, can enter his rest, right? So God's gracious provision of rest happened this way. It comes through the person of Jesus Christ. Because there is a God the Father created or finished his work of creation on day six and rested on day seven. The Son of God, Jesus, also did a work, right, that has been finished, right? God the Son, he became a human being like us with those same longings, those same desires. He took on flesh just like us. And he was the only person prior to that point, since that point, he was the only human being who actually lived in such a way where he deserved to enter that rest with the Father, right? Where he deserved to share in that, to, to revel in it, to delight in it for all eternity as a human being who had been obedient, who had been faithful, who had been trusting. He, of all human beings, was the only one who deserved that rest, right? And could have been given that rest without ever suffering. Uh, he, he could have been given that rest. But Jesus had a longing within his heart as well that just, wasn't just for his own eternal rest. But he wanted other people like us to join in that rest, right? Like he wanted us who were shut out from that rest of God to be able to enter into it, to join him in it. But the only way that that could happen, the only way that we could actually enter sinners like us into that rest of God would be if our sin could be dealt with, our treason, our rebellion against God couldn't just be sidestepped or ignored. Uh, for us to be received into that rest of God that had to be dealt with, so what happened at the cross of Jesus, at his death, was that the one who deserved the rest of God, the reward of God, instead, and before he eventually received that reward, he took the sin of people like us upon himself. He, he took our guilt upon himself. 
And as he went to the cross, God the Father punished him in our place as a sacrifice for us. Uh, he, he bore the judgment that should have been coming down upon us. That, that the, the judgment that, that should be coming down on us for all eternity, he bore it in full at the cross as a substitute for us. And it is not coincidence. I, I'm sure many of you have thought about this before, but maybe some of you haven't. It is not a coincidence that you read John chapter 19, this record of Jesus' life, and especially as he gets to the end of his life there on the cross. One of the things that Jesus said, even John records it as the last thing that he said before he died, was he said, it is finished, didn't he? Just like Genesis 2 is this language several times of God finished his work. He was finished with his work of creation. When Jesus spread out his arms and when he suffered and died on the cross, he wanted us to hear the saving work is finished. Like everything that needs to be done for you to enter into the rest of my heavenly father, for you to be in paradise with me for all eternity, it has been done right here, right now. Like you don't need to do anything else to finish it out, to kind of wrap things up, to, to add your part to it. The work that is needed for you to join me in this rest is finished, is done. 100% of it. I have suffered in your place. I have even lived obediently in your place. The, the work is finished. His work, the son's work of redemption was complete, just like the father's work of creation had been complete there on day seven. So there's this saving work that Jesus did that he finished. But the, the, the Son of God, he was laid in a tomb then, dead. And on, on Sunday morning, he was raised to life, never to die again. It's like God started this new work of redemption, of, of this new creation. And Jesus didn't just suffer for us. He didn't just uh, die in our place. He, he, further than that, as this resurrected Savior, he also invites us now to join him in that rest. He's been raised, and he, a few weeks after he was raised, he ascended back into heaven, where he's right, at, uh, right now with God the Father. He's enjoying the rest of the Heavenly Father now and forever. But he, this day is inviting all of us who will turn from our sin and place our trust in him. He is inviting us actively to come join him in that rest. So you don't deserve this. Like you, none of us deserve this. I don't deserve this, but Jesus offers it to us. He invites us into that rest. And this text that I've been very familiar with since I was a little boy just popped with significance to me this week these words of Jesus this was before he was crucified before he was raised but I think he could speak these words just as truly if not more truly as the resurrected Jesus as he did when he initially said them but in Matthew chapter 11 verses 28 through 29 Jesus said this I want you to think of this and hear this from God the Son in light of the restlessness that you feel that all of us feel as human beings this is a word of Jesus himself. He says this, Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and hear this, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. There's so much that he says in so few words there, right? But Jesus is the only place, the only person you can find that eternal rest that you long for in. Like you want it, you have this deep desire for it, and you know you cannot find it in this life. You know from the word of God, if you believe him, that you can't find it even in death itself. But Jesus possesses this rest, right? He's enjoying this rest right now and he offers it to you. He says, come to me. I know you're heavy laden. I know you're working. Some of you are even, you've been working for years to try to impress God, to try to earn this rest that you long for so badly and you cannot do that. Like it is an impossible errand for you to try to earn rest from God, earn eternal rest from God. But Jesus says, I have it, and I will give it to you. Like, but you must come to me. 
Like you don't just get it automatically. You come to me. Like you turn your life to me. You, you stop running as a rebel from me and you come to me thankful that I suffered for you and that I'm willing to share this eternal rest, this eternal reward with you. And if you come to me in that way, you will find rest for your soul. Like you will not find it in any other person, in any other activity, in any other endeavor in your life, but you can and you will find it in Christ. And so to any of you in this room this morning who have yet to do this, you you've, have felt these cravings for eternal rest. You may even tried to manufacture them yourself, but you have yet to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. I tell you this morning, if you come to him repentant and you come to him in faith, he will grant you this eternal rest even today. It's not even something you just have to wait till death to experience or to the return of Jesus to experience, but it's something he will give to you even today. It is a gift to be received. So in light of that, this rest that Jesus enjoys and that he now offers and is willing to share with us, that should affect then how we think of our six and one. Our six and one. Our six, that one What I've just been talking about should affect how we think of that one, how we spend that one, how we orient our life, right? Prior to the arrival of Jesus on this earth, the the pattern of God's people was to practice their one on the seventh day, just like God had, right? That that they would work six days, uh, Monday to, to, or Sunday to Friday, and then they would rest on Saturday, right? That, that was the seventh day where they would rest. But what you see is this fascinating thing that happens after Jesus is raised from the dead, that his disciples now, instead of just isolating that seventh day to set aside what they do, is they switch, and it's fascinating, they switch and they start setting aside the first day of the week, the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, they, they start setting that aside that to start their week, to begin their week in a, with a day that is set apart to gather and to pray and to sing. And then they work the rest of the week that follows in light of that. It's like they begin their week uh, rejoicing in this, celebrating this, what Jesus has done for us. And they work the rest of the week in light of it, right? It's not that they work in order to rest, but they rest in order to work. Like they rest in what Jesus has done for them, what he is doing for us right now. And they would call that day the Lord's Day. You see it several times in the New Testament. Rather than calling it the Sabbath, uh, they still kept that principle of one and they called it the Lord's Day. And so you'll hear us use that term at times, the, the Lord's Day. That's how we refer to Sundays. It's a day that belongs to our Lord Jesus, the one who was raised that Sunday long ago. And while we don't want to set up law beyond what the scriptures do of how we spend that one and seven, uh, we do want to treat it unique. I think we should, if we're a follower of Jesus, we should treat that one day a week different, distinct, both in what we don't do, but in what we do as well. That Sundays, the Lord's Day, is a weekly gift of God to you. It is a weekly gift of God to us to remember to rest in what Jesus has done, right? And to share in what Jesus is enjoying right now, this eternal rest of God. And so I would just encourage you as an individual or as a couple or as a family to think uh, about what are ways, and I'm not going to try to prescribe ways down to you because I think the scriptures give us freedom in some ways on this front, but what are ways that you could set aside that first day of the week to be fundamentally different from the other six? Uh, to, to not just think in terms of work week and weekend, but to think of six and one, that this day is distinct. Like this is the day we gather. This is the day we sing. This is the day that we pray. This is the day that we do things differently than what uh, we do the other six. And may we never approach it in a law-bound way. Uh, we don't practice the Sabbath because it's a command at Mount Sinai. We practice it because it's a pattern of creation. It's something that God has placed into his created order that we need and that is for our good. There's a famous quote that I'll share from time to time from Augustine uh, where he was describing in a a very uh, compact way the human experience and he was telling it as his own testimony. He said that our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's like he was talking to God, that, that our hearts are restless as a human reality until they find their rest in God, until they find their rest 
in him. And that made me think, there's a, a poet that I really like named George Herbert. Uh, he wrote a poem called The Pulley. Uh, I don't know if you know what a pulley is. I barely know what it is, but it's like the little wheel that a rope will go around and uh, you can pull one end of it and it'll like raise up the other thing. It's a means by which to affect something, like to get something to happen by by pulling on it uh, from a different angle or a different direction. Uh, this poet, George Herbert, he wrote a poem called The Pulley and it's all about rest. Uh, and it's really, I think, a, maybe even a reflection of Genesis 1 and 2. You can read it for yourself. I'm just going to share the last stanza and then I'll be done. Uh, but the, most of the poem, what he's doing is he, he's like imagining this discussion or dialogue, even if you want to think of it that way, between the Godhead as they're making, as they're creating human beings. And they're, it's like they're discussing all these gifts they're giving to human beings. This the bounty of gifts that they're pouring out on Adam and Eve. Uh, this and this and this, all these gifts and it's like they get to the bottom of this like they're pouring out all these blessings and they get to the bottom and it's like this last blessing that they're contemplating which it's not sacrilegious it's very honoring to the Lord if you read it but they're imagining like God thinking at the bottom of this this last blessing we could give to them is this blessing of rest and it's like this debate like do we give it to them or not like, do we let them experience it, Adam and Eve, now, or do we kind of withhold it for them, from them? Because what they say is, it's like, it's like he's imagining God saying, if we give it to them, then they're just going to forget us. Like, that they're going to feel, like, just content with this world. If we give them that rest that they want here on earth, they're just going to be tempted to forget us and to leave us and to ignore us. And so, at the very end, uh, this is what he said. It's like, after he's imagined all these gifts he's poured out on humans, it's like he, he chooses to withhold rest, at least temporarily, from them. And this is how the poem ends. It says... Let him keep the rest, like meaning the rest of the things like we've poured out. Let him keep the rest, but keep them with repining restlessness. Let him be rich and weary that at least if goodness lead him not, yet weariness may toss him to my breast. And it's, if you t have, take some time and think on that, those lyrics, it has a deep and profound message to us that there, it's like God is saying, I'm not going to initially give them this rest. I'm going to wait to give it to them in my son, but I'm going to withhold it from them so that they, they're going to have, even before sin enters the world, they're going to have this restlessness. They're going to have this longing within them. They're going to have this craving that they can't quite satisfy, this longing for eternal rest. And then he says, let them be rich and weary. Like, hey, they're going to have good that comes to them because of all these blessings, but they're going to be weary they're going to be tired. They're going to not have what their soul really longs for. And he's saying, let that be their experience as human beings. So that even if they have goodness and all these blessings and that doesn't push them toward me, that doesn't like draw them toward me, then that restlessness, that, that weariness that they feel, that you maybe feel in your soul, it's like he's imagining it as a pulley. Like that, that restlessness that you feel, I'm going to tap on that and I'm going to use that to pull you to myself. Like that, that I want you to feel your emptiness, the hollowness of what you're pursuing apart from me. And I'm going to let that feeling, that angst that you have, I'm going to use that as a message, something to speak to you to let you know you can only find that in me. Like you can't find it in creation. You can't find it in a significant other. You can't find it in money. You can't find it in health. You can't find it in anything other than me. And praise God that he has now in Jesus granted us that rest, right? Like he's used the pulley. Like he's pulled us to himself. He actually does satisfy that longing of our soul. He doesn't just leave us hanging. He doesn't just leave us craving. He provides that rest that we so deeply desire.